Chapter Two, Part D of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Two, Part D. However, it was not moonlight illuminating the weird tumulus, but the glare of a battery of searchlights, suggesting, as Goots irreverently remarked, the opening of a new supermarket. During my absence, the National Guard had arrived, and focused the great incandescent beams on the mound, which now covered five houses, and whose threat had driven the inhabitants from as many more. The powdery blue lights gave the grass an uncanny yellowish look, as though it had been stricken by a disease. The rays, directed low, were constantly being interrupted by the bodies of the militiamen hurrying back and forth to accomplish some definite task. "'What goes on?' inquired Goots. The officer addressed had two gleaming silver bars on his shoulder. He seemed very young and nervous. "'Sorry. No one allowed this far without special authorization.' "'Working press,' Goots produced a reporter's badge from the captain's bars. "'Oh, excuse me. Say, that was a sharp little stump, Mr. Name of Jackson Goots, Intelligencer. Captain Elpwis, how did you learn stuff like that?' I looked at him, for the name was somehow vaguely familiar, but to the best of my knowledge I had never seen that smooth boyish face before. "'Talent, natural talent. What did you say all the shooting was about?' "'Getting ready to tunnel under,' answered the officer affably. "'Blow the thing sky-high from the middle and get rid of it right now. "'Not going to let any grass grow under our feet.' "'But I read an article saying neither dynamite, TNT, nor nitroglycerin would be effective against the grass. "'Might even do more harm than good.' "'Riders!' "'Captain Eltwis dismissed literature without even resorting to an exclamation point. "'Riders!' To underline his confidence, the bone-shaking chatter of pneumatic chisels began a syncopated rattle. Military directness would accomplish in one swift, decisive stroke at the heart of things what civilian fumbling around the edges had failed to do. I looked with almost sentimental regret at the great conical heap. I had brought it into being. In a few hours it would be gone, and whatever fame its brief existence had given me would be gone with it. With swift method, the guardsmen started burrowing. In ordered relays, fresh workers replaced tired, and the pile of excavated dirt grew. Since their activity, except for its urgency and the strangeness of the situation, didn't differ from labors observable any time a street was repaired or a foundation laid, I saw no point in watching hour after hour. I thought Goot's persistence less a devotion to duty than the idle curiosity which makes grown men gape at a steam shovel. My hints being lost on him, I ascertained the hour they expected to be finished and went home. Excitement or no excitement, I saw no reason to abandon all routine. My forethought was proven when I returned refreshed in mid-morning as the last shovelfuls of dirt came from the tunnel and the explosive charges were hurried to their place. There was reason for haste. While the tunneling had been going on, all the grass-fighting activity had ceased, for the militia had ordered weed-burners, reapers, bulldozers, and the rest off the scene. The weed, unhampered for the first time since Mrs. Dinkman attacked it with her lawnmower, responded by growing, 
and growing, until more and more guardsmen had to be detached to the duty of keeping it back from the excavation by the very means they had scorned so recently. Even their most frantic efforts could not prevent the grass from sending its most advanced tendrils down into the gaping hole where the wires were being laid to detonate the charge. There was so much dashing to and fro, so many orders relayed, so many dispatches delivered, that I thought I might have been witnessing an out-of-date Civil War play instead of a peacetime action of the California National Guard. Captain Eltwis, I kept wondering where I'd heard the name, was constantly being interrupted in what was apparently a very friendly conversation with Goots by the arrival of official-looking envelopes, which he immediately stuffed into his pocket with every indication of vexation. "'Silly old fools,' he muttered, each time the incident happened. Quick inspections made, plans checked, an order was rasped to clear the vicinity. Goots' agonized protests that he had to report the occasion for the intelligencer's readers was ignored. "'Can't start making exceptions,' explained Captain Eltwis. Everyone, working press, militia, sightseers and all, had to move back a couple of blocks where intervening trees and houses cut us off from any view of the green hill.' "'This is terrible!' exclaimed Goots frantically. "'Tragic! How'll I live it down? How am I going to face W.R.? Godlike wrath. What pool hall were you dozing in, Goots? Asleep on your bloody feet, eh? Somnambulistic offspring of a three-toed sloth? Wait all night for a story and then not get it like a star legman on the Jackson Junior High School jive jitterbug?' I'll never be able to hold my head up again. Say something, say something, Wiener. I've got to get this. We'll be able to hear the explosion from here, I remarked to console him, for his distress was genuine. Oh, he groaned, hear the explosion. Albert, Albert, you have a fertile mind. Why didn't I hide myself before they told us to clear out? Why didn't I get W.R. to hire a plane? Why didn't I foresee this and do any of a hundred things? A microphone and automatic movie camera. Goonie Goots, they called him, the man who missed all bets. A captive balloon now. Hey, what about a roof? Trees, I objected, with a mental picture of him bursting into the nearest house and demanding entrance to the roof. Bourgeois, there's no tree in the way of the old box of there. It wasn't till he had urged me inside and up a flight of stairs that I realized the box was Miss Francis's apartment house. It had been a logical choice, since its height and ugliness distinguished it even from its unhandsome neighbors. Less than a week had gone by since I had come here for the first time. As I followed Goot's grasshopper leaps upward at a more dignified pace, I reflected how strangely my circumstances had changed. The shoddily carpeted halls were musty and still as we climbed, except for the unheeding squeak of a radio someone had forgotten to turn off. You could always tell when a radio was being listened to, for when disregarded it sulkily gave off painfully listless noises in frustration and loneliness. I wasn't at all surprised to find Miss Frances among the spectators crowded on the roof in evidence of having no more important occupation. I somehow expected you. "'Have you any new tricks?' she asked Goots coaxingly. "'He called your worship. What time have I for legerdemain? "'With your help now, I'd be a fine gentleman journalist. 
instead of an overworked ack. Ha! she said genially, busy with the toothpick. You'll find enough respectable laboratory mechanics eager to cooperate. How long will it be before they shoot, do you know? Gooch shook his head, and I strained my eyes toward the grass. Symmetrical and shimmeringly green, removed as it now was from all connotations of danger by distance and the promise of immediate destruction, it showed serenely beautiful and unaffected by the machinations of its attackers. I could almost have wept as I traced its sloping sides upward to the rounded peak on top. Reversing all previous impressions, it now appeared to be the natural inhabitant, and all the houses, roadways, pavements, fences, automobiles, light poles, and the rest of the evidences of civilization, the intruders. But even as I looked at it, so eagerly, it moved, and wavered, and I heard the muffled boom of explosion. The roof trembled and windows rattled with diminishing echoes. The noise was neither a great nor terrifying one, and I distinctly remember thinking it quite inadequate to the occasion. I believe all of us there, when we heard the report, expected to see a vast hole where the grass had been. I'm sure I did. When it was clear this hadn't happened, I continued to stare hard, thinking, since my high school physics was so hazy, I had somehow reversed the relative speed of sight and sound, and we had heard the noise before seeing the destruction. But the green bulk was still there. Oh, not unchanged by any means. The smooth picture-book slope had become jagged and bruised, while the regular, evenly rounded apex had turned into a sort of Phrygian cap with its pinnacle woundedly askew. The outlines, which had been sharp, were now blurred. Its evenness had become scraggly. The placid surface was vexed. The attempt on its being had hurt. But not mortally, for even with outline altered, it remained defiant certain, inexorable. The air was filled with small green particles, whirling and floating downward. Feathery, yet clumsy, they refused to obey gravity and seek the earth urgently, but instead shifted and changed direction, coyly spiraling upward and sideways before yielding to the inevitable attraction. At least there's less of it, observed Goots. This much, anyway, he added, holding a broken stolen in his fingers. Cynodon Dactylon, said Miss Frances, like most of the family Graminia, is propagated not only by seed, but by cuttings as well. That is to say, any part of the plant, except the leaves or flowers, separated from the parent whole, upon receiving water and nourishment will root itself and become a new parent or entity. The dispersion of the mass, far from making the whole less, as our literary friend so ingeniously assumes, increases it to what mathematicians call the nth power, because each particle finding a new resting place unhampered by the competition for food it encountered when integrated with the parent mass, now becomes capable of spreading infinitely itself, unless checked by factors which deprive it of sustenance. These facts have been repeated a hundred times in letters, telegrams, and newspaper articles since the project of attempting to blow up the inoculated batch was known. In spite of warnings, the authorities chose to go ahead. No, make no mistake. This fiasco has not set Synodon Dactylon back a millimeter. Rather, 
it has advanced it tremendously. There was silence while we absorbed this unpleasant bit of information. Goots was the first to regain his usual cockiness, and he asked, You say fiasco, Professor. Okay, can you tell us just why it was a fiasco? I know they stuck enough soup under it to blow the whole works, and when it went off it gave out with a good bang. Certainly. Synodon dactylon spreads in what may be called chumps. That is, the stems are short and jointed. Those above ground, the true stems, are called stolons, and those below, from which the roots spread, are rhizomes. Conceive, if you will, two inch lengths of stiff wire, and this plant is vulgarly called wire grass in some regions, just as it is called devil grass here, bent on either end at right angles. Now take these bits and weave them horizontally into a thick mass. Then add vertically more of the wires, breaking the pattern occasionally, and putting in more in odd places, just to be sure there are no logical fracture points. Cover this involved web, not forgetting it has three dimensions, despite my instructions treating it as a plane, with earth, eight, ten, or twelve inches deep. Then try to blow it up with dynamite or trinitrotoluene, and see if you haven't, in a much lesser degree, duplicated and accounted for the situation in hand. Everything now seemed unusually, and perhaps because of the contrast, unreasonably quiet. Downstairs, the radio, which had been monotonously soothing a presumptive audience of unsatisfied housewives with languid ballads, raised its pitch several tones as though for the first time it had become interested in what it pervaded. Yes, unseen friends, God is preparing his vengeance for wickedness and sin, even as you are listening. You have been warned many times of the wrath to come, but I say to you the wrath is at hand. Even now God is giving you a sign of his displeasure, a cloud no bigger than a man's hand. But, oh, my unseen friends, that cloud has within it all the storms, cyclones, typhoons, hurricanes, and tornadoes necessary to destroy you and yours. Unless you repent of your pride and sloth, judgment will surely come upon you. The Lord has taken a simple and despised weed and caused it to multiply in defiance of all your puny powers and efforts. Oh, my friends, do not fight this grass, but cherish it. Do not allow it to be cut down, for it is full of significance for you. Call off all your minions and repent, lest if the holy messenger be injured, a more terrible one is sent. But now, my friends, I see my time is up. Please send your contributions so urgently needed to carry on the divine work to Brother Paul, care of the station to which you are listening. That's one way of looking at it, said Goots. Adios, amigos. He went down the stairs at an even more breakneck pace than he had come up. Almost in front of the apartment house, we nearly collided with two officers in angry dispute. You mean to tell me, Captain, that not one of the urgent orders to suspend operations came through to you? Colonel, I haven't seen a thing against the project except some fool articles in a newspaper. Suddenly... I remembered where I'd seen the name Eltwis. It was on the financial page, not far away from the elusive quotation on consolidated pemmican and allied concentrates for which I'd been idly searching. Eltwis explosives cut melon. 
Funny how things come back to you as soon as you put them out of your mind. Miss Frances, who had followed us down, was busy collecting some of the stolens, which were still floating lazily downward. End of chapter 2, part D.